Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Bitcoin for Everybody podcast. The idea behind this is for it to be, as the name suggests, a podcast that everybody can listen to and enjoy, whether you know nothing about Bitcoin or everything there is to know. These episodes will be split into two parts. In the first part, our guest is going to explain Bitcoin in a nutshell. In the second part, the same guest is going to dive deep into some current events happening in the market and answer a few questions from the audience. The path to understanding Bitcoin is different for every person based on their life experience. So our goal is to build a library of Bitcoin explanations by professionals from all walks of life. So whether you're new to Bitcoin and looking for an explanation yourself, or you understand it well but are looking for different angles to orange pill your family and friends, this is the Bitcoin podcast for you. Hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning into the Bitcoin for Everybody show. We're here with Brian DeMint, author of Bitcoin Evangelism. He's a small business owner, and he's also now the head of marketing at Orange Pill App, a social network to meet Bitcoiners. Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing well. And by the way, I'm not, it's Friday. I'm not taking shots right now. It's a, it's a green tea energy like shot. So, so I'm not, I'm not like partying early and dismissing the podcast here. Although that make, that might make for, for better answers or at least more entertaining answers. So maybe next time. We all agree to take a shot. I'm not a big drinker, so it wouldn't take me very much to to get tipsy on this episode. But no, man, I'm doing good. It's Friday, feeling good. Happy to be with my boys here talking about Bitcoin. Awesome. All right, well, let's jump right in. So, Brian, tell us a little bit about your background prior to Bitcoin and even what you do now, not related to Bitcoin. Yeah. So my profession that's not Bitcoin that I've had since 2008, my wife and I, we started a, a small business. It's a chain of now it's grown into a chain of light therapy studios. So we do red light therapy, sunbeds, infrared saunas. We do we're getting into cold plunge and salt salt rooms and all those types of things. So so things that are wellness based kind of alternative things that people are doing. It's fantastic, and that that thing is is amazing. The the our our tagline for that it's called salt and light wellness. So it's light based therapies that help people. And we say it's it's amazing what light can do. It's really incredible what a little bit of sunshine can do for you. Like it, more than just vitamin D, like there's so many health benefits. Infrared light can can do so many wonderful things for people. So yeah, we've we've been doing that business for dang near 15 years now. My wife and I started it right out of college. The reason why we started it though is also part of my Bitcoin journey. And this is before I knew anything about this is before Bitcoin existed, because this is like 2008, like even a little bit before Satoshi wrote the white paper or published the white paper. We graduated college. We both worked full-time through college. We knew we were going to get married. We'd saved a bunch of money. We saved like a good amount of money. My brother's six years older than me. And so I remember him a few years before I was about to graduate college saying that he, he bought this really nice house. And all he did was he said, yeah, I just wrote down on a piece of paper how much money I make. Like, this is amazing. So he got this house that was way more expensive, way nicer than he should have gotten. So I had this expectation throughout college, like, oh, I'm actually going to save up some money and buy a house. And it's going to be really easy unless you graduate from college in 2008 and there's a housing financial crisis going on. So me and my wife walked into the bank and I'd worked construction. So I'd worked all for cash throughout college. And as a snowboarding instructor, I had no credit. I'd had a credit card for like two years. I had no credit. I had like no employment history that I could prove, even though we'd save some money. But my wife, she worked as, as a substitute teacher. The banker actually laughed us out of the bank. I, I never really had experience with bankers, but this was my first time as an adult. I'm with my wife. I'm, I think I'm coming in as big man in here, like, oh, me and my wife are going to buy a house. Will you give us, you know, will you help us, you know, lend us some money so we can buy a house? And as a man, like, it was pretty demoralizing being laughed out in front of my wife. I mean, she's getting laughed at, I guess, too. 
but I felt really helpless and powerless. And it really put into perspective, like, man, these banks got us by the balls here. Well, the cool thing was we took all that cash and we started a business. And here we are 15 years later and we have multiple locations. The thing's grown. We're licensing the thing now so people can open their own salt and light locations. And, and it's been incredible, man. So that wasn't my Bitcoin journey per se, but it absolutely factored into maybe a little bit of my disdain for banks. Like I think banks have, you know, maybe they're necessary evil in the world, but I definitely uh, have a little ire towards them. So what did get you intrigued in Bitcoin initially? Um, it was it was an episode of Joe Rogan Experience with Andreas Antonopoulos. I've been studying Bitcoin in 2013, pretty pretty skeptical. It came out from a skeptical approach. I'm, uh, that was my same journey as a Christian. I'm a pretty devout evangelical Christian, and I was an atheist before that. And I had very logical concerns about the validity of like, what's a good argument for God? What's why is the Bible reliable and stuff? So I had to kind of go through all these logical, whether whether they're fallacies or arguments or you know, whatever, to get to this point about where I actually have faith in God. It's that same thing. I don't have faith in Bitcoin, but there I came at it from a, a skeptical perspective. And to me, that actually enriched my belief in it because I went from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum. I believe I'm a, a more devout ardent follower of that thing because I was once very skeptical of it and I I don't have as many doubts in it right like I can never prove God's existence but I can make some fairly compelling arguments for why God God exists and so that actually enriches my faith a bit and same thing with Bitcoin because I made all the arguments of oh it's a Ponzi scheme it's a scam it's magic internet money all those things because I went through that process, I didn't just believe those things because somebody told me to believe them. I studied them for myself. But the moment, the zeitgeist moment was Andreas Antonopoulos on Joe Rogan Experience. And I had heard this before from Bitcoiners, but he made it click. He said that in the, in the history of computer science, we've never had a way to make things that were digital finite. And he goes, think about that. Everything in the world is going digital. Everything that was analog is going digital. It's it's inevitable that everything else will go digital, except for money. Money is the one thing that until Bitcoin could not be digital because we could not cap it. Bitcoin was that cherry on the pie that enabled us to cap digital things. Therefore, money could then be digital. It's fundamentally transformative for all of human history. So there's going to be, just like there's a AD and BC in history, there's going to be a, a before Bitcoin and an after Bitcoin moment of history where we'll say that this was before money could be digital. And this is now once we're in the era where we can cap things and make things digital. And the example he used was the music industry. The music industry used to be analog, right? It was records, it was CDs, it was tapes and cassettes and all these things. And so music in, the music industry, record labels had a way to restrain the supply, right? If you wanted this song, you had to buy the cassette. But once once music went digital and went to MP3 format, all of a sudden, me and you could share it over LimeWire or Napster or whatever. I could just send it to you as a file. I could copy and paste that song as many times as I want and send it out to as many people as I want. They lost total control because this once analog thing got, it ran into the digital age before they had a way to cap it. And it transformed the music industry until this day. The music industry is monetized completely differently today than it was back in 1990, right? And it's all because the transformation of digital music. And so 
We're in the era of digital money and Bitcoin's the best option for digital money. And this is the other cool thing about it. It's the only money that's ever existed that isn't controlled and issued by government. So it's amazing that like, it's very possible that the U.S., could have just had really smart people. They could have developed the CBDC before Bitcoin ever existed. And we would have, this era would have been ushered in by government decree, but it wasn't. It was ushered in by anonymous people that just gifted it to the world. I mean, it, to me, it's no coincidence. It's like, this was fate. This was destiny for the world for this to happen. And uh, it's, it's absolutely inevitable that Bitcoin takes over. Better things always went out over a long enough period of time and Bitcoin's absolutely inevitable. Great point. Just covered a lot there. I'm not sure where to, where to jump in. You, you could just give about... me one of these, like, just like, hey, Brian, like, chop it down a little bit. Oh, we need no. to make some sound bites out of this. I'll give you some no. one-liners. <laughs> no, this is perfect. You said Bitcoin was anonymous. That's one thing that I think a lot of people don't actually know is that nobody actually knows who the creator of Bitcoin is. So, Brian, what do you think is the significance of that? And, or why was that needed? Like, why did the creator of Bitcoin need to be anonymous and why did they need to disappear? Yeah. Well, the, the example I would give is what if Donald Trump created Bitcoin? Do you think that would create a little divisiveness around Bitcoin? Would that be a personality driven <laughs> innovation? Would people judge it based on its merits or would people judge it based on the personality? I think they would judge it based on the personality. And Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator or the group of creators was very aware of this. They, they knew that they needed to remain anonymous because it, their identity actually didn't matter. Everybody's fallible. I like to think of myself as a good person. Cameron, I know you're a good dude. Like Anthony, I just met you, but you seem like a, a stand-up guy. I think we're, we, we try to be good moral people, but guess what? I'm still going to mess up 20% of the time on any given day. Like you're always going to be able to call out my faults if, if Bitcoin was based around my character, right? Like I'm going to have something that you're going to be able to expose about it. So Satoshi took himself out of the equation. And the reason why it doesn't matter, and you hear people that, that doubt Bitcoin, they say, oh, Russia created it or the NSA created it. Guess what? It actually doesn't matter if they did. If they did, fantastic. It doesn't matter because it's open source software by which we can see all of the rules. And so it's like, who cares who invented the game of Monopoly, right? Like Hitler could have invented the game of Monopoly, I don't agree with him ideologically, but the rules of Monopoly, it doesn't matter that he made them because the rules of Monopoly, I can read the rule book and I can play the game and it's completely independent of the person who created it. And so Bitcoin's that way as well. Satoshi is irrelevant. I mean, I think as Bitcoiners, we we make kind of a big deal about Satoshi and oh, and guys even say things like, in the name of Satoshi, blah, 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 like almost like it's a religion. I think that we, we shouldn't exalt Satoshi. I think Satoshi would probably, if you want to follow what he wanted, he would probably want us to, to kind of dunk on his name a little bit and say, who cares? He doesn't even matter. Like what matters is the network. What matters is what was put into the world. And so, yeah, that's probably my best synopsis of how I could describe that. It just does not matter who Satoshi was. It can be fun to think about. I've watched documentaries on who people think Satoshi is. If you want to understand that that's just fun but it, it does not matter for, for Bitcoin's future or anything like that. That's true. Yeah. That's a question I get a lot too. Like, you know, what if the government tries to stop it? The government's not going to allow it. I think that's another important thing about why Satoshi disappeared. You know, you can't stop something if you don't know where the creator is. And all, even if Satoshi did resurface, there's nothing Satoshi could do to stop Bitcoin. There you another go. 
and super powerful thing about it. Yeah. So who do you, who do you think Satoshi is? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> who do you think, Anthony? I thought I thought it was you, Brian. <laughs> uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe Brian, you get laughed out of the bank. Yeah, created Bitcoin right there. Oh, yeah. That was in 2008. Yeah, we have so a motive. I just motive. turned around. Yeah, all right, it's all starting to add up now. Okay, so Brian, this first part of this episode is kind of really geared towards people that have little to no understanding of Bitcoin. So, you know, Bitcoin's created in 2008, 2009, aftermath of the global financial crisis. Why did Satoshi create Bitcoin in your perspective? I think that he was part of that cypherpunk movement where, where, where privacy really mattered to them and sovereignty really mattered to them. In the first block of Bitcoin, you can actually kind of inscribe words onto these blocks, which is just part of the history of, of Bitcoin. It says Chancellor on the brink of bailout. And it was a headline from a British newspaper that said that, that they were doing more bailouts. So essentially, Satoshi's telling the world, hey, the money's broken. Governments are running wild. Boom, here's Bitcoin. Like it, it seems like it's an immune response to a fiat sickness is, is probably the best way to describe that in simple terms. Yeah, a lot of people think maybe don't realize that dollars can, you know, there's an infinite supply, really. They can just print them out of thin air. Yeah. On that note, I mean, like I made the, the, the monopoly analogy earlier. In monopoly, if you have $1,000, you know exactly how much of the total dollars in that game that you have. So you have a barometer by which you can judge your success or failure. If I have 1000 US dollars, how well am I doing? I don't know. I don't, there's no good metric for how much currency is in circulation. If, if we played a game of Monopoly with my five-year-old daughter and we're all sitting around the table and we just say that we're going to go off of whatever rule she says and she doesn't tell us how much money is in circulation or she doesn't tell us that like, well, when she passes go, she gets $1,000. But when we pass go, we get $50. Like she makes those rules up as we go. We would never play that game of Monopoly. And yet that's the way our fire, the financial system for the entire world operates. So if it was a game of Monopoly, we would say that's absurd. But because that's the way that it's done in the real world, somehow we we accept that 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 doesn't make sense. I don't know how much what percentage of the of the U.S. wealth I hold if I hold the thousand dollars. If we were looking at a pie chart, there's no way for me to figure out what portion of that pie chart I am. That's very unfair. That's that's a game I don't want to play. I think Satoshi didn't want to play that game either. And so that's why he gave us Bitcoin, where. If you hold Bitcoin, you know exactly of that pie chart. You know exactly what portion you have. So if you want to work harder and you want more of that pie, proof of work, baby. You go out and you work for it and you get it. You don't have to rely on somebody else's good graces. You can get it yourself. So we've kind of got the basis for when Bitcoin was created, kind of why it was created. So Brian, imagine somebody comes up to you and they say, you know, Brian, I hear you're a Bitcoin guy. Explain Bitcoin to me in a nutshell in the next 20, 30 minutes. I know, of course, it takes a significant amount of time. Probably, I think most people estimate at least 100 hours or so before the light bulb really clicks. But if you just want to get somebody intrigued and kind of give them a general idea of what Bitcoin actually is in, say, 20 or 30 minutes, how would you do that? Because a lot of people, I, th I think a lot of people really have no clue what it is. It's hard to grasp how something digital can have value, like mm -hmm. why it's so volatile, you know, how, how it operates without any CEO or employees, stuff like that. How would you describe Bitcoin in a nutshell? 
well, I'm now going to talk for the next 30 minutes without stopping. <laughs> no, I'm uh, no, I, I know you can't. <laughs> if you don't stop me, I'm just going to keep going. It's important. It's really important to ask questions. I mean, so my book, Bitcoin Evangelism, like that is the suggestion. It says, here's a bunch of different arguments for Bitcoin or a lot of logical reasons why Bitcoin matters. Now, if you're trying to explain this to somebody, don't give them all 100 answers about Bitcoin. Ask them the things that matter to them. Like I said, we, we have a business. And as I'm training my employees on sales, the first thing I do is I tell them to ask a customer questions because you're going to find out exactly what the customer needs and what matters to them. Why would you sell them you know, product X when they actively don't want that, but they want product Y? You've been explaining product X this whole time, you just wasted the last five minutes and your opportunity to sell product Y is now gone. Like you've talked for five minutes about the wrong thing. Now the thing they would have bought that, that proposition is no longer on the table. So we can do that with that same thing with Bitcoin. I think that's what happens more often than not with Bitcoin is somebody asks us about Bitcoin and they ask us this open-ended question. And so, you know, like what is Bitcoin? Why does it matter? For an interview format, that's a great question. But for like interpersonally, we need to control that conversation a little bit more. So if somebody asks me, why, why does Bitcoin matter? And I start talking about scarcity. There's only 21 million Bitcoin in the whole world. There's an infinite supply of currency and therefore Bitcoin wins because it's, it's finite. That's great to a gold bug. But if my liberty-minded friend, the person that's going out to, to, to freedom rallies, you know, anti-lockdown rallies or anti-mandate rallies, the thing that I'm going to talk to them about is about censorship resistance, is about immutability. Your bank account, we're putting a lot, an awful lot of trust in Wells Fargo or Bank of America to tell me that like what they send me on my statement at the end of the month is actually accurate, right? Like most people don't do a line by line audit of their personal banking at any given time. Like we're just kind of just the bank says that that's my balance and therefore that's what it is, right? So in a, in a future where central bank digital currencies, and for those listeners who haven't heard of this, there's this you know, things called CBDC, central bank digital currencies, which are like the government's version of Bitcoin, which are rolling out. We're filming this in, in July of 2023. Um, FedNow, this, the, the precursor for this system, just went live. So a programmed form of money from the government is coming out very, very soon. If you're a liberty-minded person, that's a kind of concerning prospect. And so talking about Bitcoin from a point of view saying, look at, even if the government says, no, you cannot spend money to buy a firearm. No, you cannot spend money to buy organic meat. No, you cannot buy, you, you can't buy from this guy because he once bought from this other guy that we don't like. Even though you're buying something that we do approve of, he did something at one point we don't like. That's a lot of power based on the money, if you want an option to opt out of that system, guess what? Bitcoin is that, that escape hatch. And so I think it's really important to, to tailor those based on the person you're talking to. For me, the thing that I think that most people want to know is just tell me why Bitcoin has value. I'm not a scarcity gold bug. I'm not a freedom fighter. Even though those things are cool and I see their relevance, just tell me why it has value. And so what I would say to that, my elevator pitch to that would be, because the best types of arguments are prima facie arguments. So like in, in court, you would say arguments that are apparent on their face. Like, I don't need to break down data for you. You don't need to trust that I'm going to cite some source and I'm going to cite it accurately. I'm just going to give you an example. And it's self-evident based on what I say. And so I asked them, they say, why is Bitcoin valuable? Okay, well, 
do you think Visa and MasterCard, are they valuable? And they'd say, yeah, absolutely. And I said, well, how valuable do you think they are? I don't know, probably billions of dollars. And I would say to them, yeah, you're right. Actually, 700, 800, 900 billion dollars is what those companies are worth. Why are they worth anything? They're worth something. The market, society has deemed that those things are worth 900 billion dollars because the act of sending money from one person to another, whether I'm standing right in front of them, I'm swiping a credit card at their terminal, or whether I'm sending a payment across the world, that ability is worth $900 billion. And guess what? That's just two companies that do that. All of the world's desire, all of the market's need for sending money via ACH, Venmo, PayPal, all these different forms. So it's good to start small and then scale out. Like Visa and MasterCard, we can wrap our hand our head around a $900 billion company. But can you wrap your head around all of the desire to send money around the world? That's trillions of dollars of how valuable that is. Well, guess what? Bitcoin is that, but it's the only version out of all of those where you don't need a middleman. You don't have to ask permission from a third party. So any so so say all of those services are worth $3 trillion. Guess what? Bitcoin is at least worth $3 trillion plus the added functionality of I don't need to ask permission. So whatever extra value you want to ascribe to that. So those are some of the things like that's it. That's it. That, that argument right there is apparent on its face. You cannot argue that the prospect of sending value is not valuable. It is absolutely valuable. And the market dictates that. Great, great point, sir. All around. Um, one thing I think maybe confuses some people or some people don't realize maybe is that you have the Bitcoin, the network, and then Bitcoin, the asset. So like everything you were just talking about, you know, Visa, MasterCard, all these payment processors, you know, their value comes from the ability to send, you know, send dollars or send whatever currency over a channel. And that's a very powerful uh, thing. So, with, but with Bitcoin, I think I heard a quote one time that was like the worst thing that Satoshi did or the only bad thing Satoshi did was he named the Bitcoin the network and the asset the same thing. Like he didn't change the name. Like it's just like maybe Bitcoin or the capital B is the network and then Bitcoin a little B is the asset. So you have Bitcoin the network, which is this. And I guess, Brian, explain how Bitcoin the network is, I guess, better than, you know, Visa, MasterCard. You mentioned those permissionless. How, how does it actually work? Like who, who is running the Bitcoin network? Yeah. Well, and, and so there's a few things there. I mean, you you distinguish the difference between Bitcoin, the asset and Bitcoin, the network. So just for, for layman's terms, for people to understand what we're talking about there, Visa does not send Visa bucks over the Visa network. Visa sends US dollars or yen or whatever over the Visa network. So that's the network. And then there's the assets. Well, why, what makes Bitcoin confusing is you're sending BTC over the Bitcoin network. And that's why usually Bitcoin, the unit, the, the unit of account is denominated as BTC. And then Bitcoin capital B would be the network. So yeah, we're sending BTC over the Bitcoin network. That's that's what we're talking about. So there's that that just kind of expands the value proposition of Bitcoin. Like BTC, the asset is valuable because of what we talked about earlier, scarcity. There's only so much of this BTC in the world. Bitcoin, the network is valuable because of that Visa MasterCard argument I just made right there. The value goes beyond that, right? Like how valuable is a network? Value of a network matters to me based on how many people I can interact with. So if there's a hundred million other Bitcoiners in the world that I can buy and sell 
goods and services with that will accept Bitcoin. That has a lot of value to me at Orange Pill App. I'm, so I'm, I'm the head of marketing at Orange Pill App. One of the things we're doing is we're building the social layer for Bitcoin. We're a social network for Bitcoiners. And what we're doing is we're we're building social infrastructure where you can meet other Bitcoiners in real life. And, and some people are like, well, why does that matter that much? Like some people get it and they're like, yeah, I want Bitcoin friends. And other people are like, well, I, why does it matter if I know people in Bitcoin? Well, those CBDCs we just talked about a minute ago, say if they come out and they say that you can only buy this type of food on this day of the week and you can only spend $100 a day because we need to crush inflation. We need to bring the velocity of money down and your family can only buy so much stuff. And all these rules get put in place around the money. And it's the most tyrannical thing we've ever seen in existence. How high is the value prospect? How high is the value pitch of knowing a farmer where you could buy your beef, knowing a guy where he can fix your computer because so you can continue to work and continue to provide for your family. Like if I know a guy in real life that will accept Bitcoin, accept BTC through the Bitcoin network, that's the synergy between those two things. The guy cares about the asset, but then the thing that facilitates these transactions is Bitcoin, the network. So those two things work hand in hand together. But the way that the network works, you, you kind of have to go back to first principles is why was it built this way? And the reason it was built this way is brilliant. People have heard of, of Bitcoin mining before, but most people, it sounds dorky or nerdy or convoluted or whatever. So the simplest way I think to describe it is if we were going to create a network where no one was in charge, how would we do that? Okay, well, what do we need first? We need computers to process those transactions. Okay, but how do we make sure that they don't get all of the power? Like how do they, they like all of a sudden they could be the middleman, right? And so we need a distributed network, a decentralized network of people so that it's not just one or two computers. It's a bunch of computers actually competing against one another to secure the network. That's where Bitcoin mining comes in. The way Bitcoin mining works is it's not even that doesn't sound that sophisticated. It's like a lottery in reverse. So what is a lottery? A lottery is Monday to Thursday. I go out and I buy my lottery tickets. Those are essentially all my guesses of what the of what the Powerball number is going to be at the end of the week. Right. Well, Bitcoin mining is the opposite. Every 10 minutes, new Bitcoin gets minted and all of the computers. When that 10 minutes starts, the network says go all the computers on that network are racing to guess a number as fast as possible. That number is called the nonce. Whatever computer guesses that number, they have the privilege to put the next block of transactions on the blockchain. So the last, all the Bitcoin transactions that went back and forth for the last 10 minutes, that computer gets the right to put that on the network. They get six and a quarter Bitcoin right now for doing that. And that gets added to the chain. The chain being, every 10 minutes of transactions <clears throat> all the way back to 2009 when Satoshi mined that first block. And so that's how you create an incentive that nobody's in control of, but everybody can participate in it if they want to. And it's the best kind of system because we're not trusting in anybody else's good motives, right? I'm not trusting in other people's altruism. That's why systems, unfortunately, like, like communism, socialism don't work because we're trusting in somebody else's altruism. Sometimes my leader might be, he might care about me and he might do what's in my best interest, but sometimes he might do what's in his own best interest. The only systems that ever work over a long period of time are ones in which everything's based on somebody's own self-interest. 
If I can make it so that somebody else's self-interest aligns with my self-interest, that's a really good thing. So computers all over the world mining Bitcoin, racing to get the right to mine the next block, the more computers that do that, they're enriching themselves. But by doing that, they're securing my Bitcoin because the more they compete, the more competition, the safer the network is. And so I've just aligned their incentives to enrich themselves with my incentive to preserve my wealth. It's a beautiful system. And just to take that one step away, we can look at this in like a kind of a practical analogy. I was on a plane the other day and on that plane, there was like 150, 200 people. I don't know how many people sit on a plane, but there was a lot of centralization in that on that flight, right? There's 200 people, there's 200 passengers, there's only two pilots. Why does that system work? Why don't I panic the entire time that I'm gonna get home safe? It's because that those two pilots, I'm not trusting that they care about me. I actually don't care if they care about me. I just want them to care about themselves. If that guy is not suicidal and he wants to get home to his family, I'm going to get home, home to my family as well. So I only have to trust that he's going to be selfish and greedy. And that's the best kind of system that works because I can count on that 100% of the time that people will act in their own best interest. And if that miner doesn't act in his own best interest, and if he's not supplying hashing power to the network, then somebody else will do that that is acting in their own self-interest. So there will always be somebody that's going to protect me that's acting in their own self-interest. Wow. Awesome. That was a great explanation of Bitcoin mining. I think Bitcoin mining is something that uh, people can maybe understand Bitcoin, but the mining part of it is uh, it kind of takes a while to understand. And that, that was just a perfect way to describe it, I think. So anyway, Anthony, do you have anything to add to that? I think I have a couple of questions maybe. And I started reading your book, Bitcoin Evangelism, earlier this week. I've only gotten a few chapters in, but I, I think you're just full of great analogies. You do a really good job of putting stuff in layman's terms. And I think just speaking on that, aligning everybody's interests for the betterment of the entire network, you gave a, a really cool analogy with a bee, right? And when they pollinate, they're just worried about, you know, drinking, what is it they drink? Nectar or whatever? Nectar, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're just there to drink the nectar, but unknowingly they're pollinating the flowers and thus that benefits the ecosystem. So that's really cool. I know you, you spoke about hash power, right? And I think, is that just me using the electricity to mine the Bitcoin? Is that what that is? Yeah, that's exactly what that is. <clears throat> a more technical, but still accessible statement on that would be that you hear this term algorithm. So anytime you want to sound smart, just throw the word algorithm out there. Nobody's going to call you on it. So I'm just going to say the word algorithm right here, but, but Bitcoin... There's this algorithm called SHA-256, and what it does is it produces a new number every 10 minutes. And then your, your computer, if you're mining Bitcoin, there's another, the way computer code would need to be written in order to guess a random number was, is there's, there's an algorithm. So there's a series of steps that your computer goes through, and that's how your computer generates a random number as well. So if the random number you generated, that's called a hash. If that number is the same as the hash of the Bitcoin network, you've then just guessed the right number and you get to mine the next block. So a hash is essentially just a fancy word for a guess. We call it a hash because it's 
it's your computer doing a mathematical problem that results in a number. That number may or may not be the right answer. So every time you're hashing. Now, to put in perspective of how fast these hashes go and how the magnitude of the Bitcoin network, it's pretty dang impressive. And this might be more for the second part of the episode where, <laughs> where we get into the nitty gritty, but I have a Bitcoin miner out in my garage. It's like a little desktop one. It's very quiet. It's not like a real big, powerful one, but there's computers that are called ASICs. They're, they, they, they're engineered to do this hashing function very quickly. So my computer can do this function, but it doesn't do it very quickly. But a computer that's designed for it does it very fast. I have a smaller unit and out in my garage right now, I'm guessing 100 billion hashes per second. Now, the number that the network's racing to find is so big that my 100 billion per second guesses is probably never going to win that race in any 10 minute period of time. So there's computers all over the world guessing trillions and trillions and actually quadrillions. I forget what the number is. It's like sectillions of guesses per second to find this number. That's how big this number is. That's how uncrackable this number is. And so it's, it's really impressive when you get the scope of it. Like our heads literally can't wrap around that scale, but it's like more than the sands of all the beaches on all the world per second is how many guesses the Bitcoin network is doing. Yeah. It's another very important part of Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining specifically is that versus like the US dollars, whoever is in control of the money supply can just create dollars with a press of a button. Essentially, there's no expense to that. Well, there's Bitcoin mining. You actually have to use energy to mine Bitcoin. It's not like you can just mine it for free or you can just plug up your laptop and pay hardly anything in electricity and get a lot of Bitcoin. It uses a significant amount of energy to secure the network, which improves the security of it. You know, somebody like gold is valuable. Like gold isn't just valuable because it's shiny or this color or anything. It is a scarce, but also it's very difficult and energy intensive to mine gold. Um, so yeah. Well, to even put that in perspective too, I think people say like, well, how energy intensive is it for you to run a computer that that does this thing? It's like, no, it's very energy intensive. Like these big Bitcoin miners, these ones that are engineered for it, they're five to $10,000 a piece that you buy. If you, if you had it in your room right now, we wouldn't be able to talk over it. It's so loud. It's, I mean, if your computer starts working hard, you're like, oh, that's kind of annoying, but I can, I can still listen to music or whatever. This thing, it's, it's like turning, it's like taking your TV volume and turning it to max volume. That's how hard these computers are working. So yes, there's a lot of physical work for this computer, which means you're paying a lot of physical energy to expend that work. So whether I'm doing the work or whether I'm paying the bill for my electricity that's doing that work, there's some sort of cost to that work. That's really great. Like the government, like you said, it'd be a great system if the government said, you know what, Congress needs to work a hundred hours for every billion dollars that gets created. Once Congress works the next hundred <laughs> hours, we can create another billion dollars. Well, yeah, that's a pretty fair and balanced system. They can't spend more money until they've done more work. That would be a good system. Unfortunately, we don't have that, but we do have Bitcoin and, and that's a really good alternative. Awesome. I think that sums it up pretty well. I think that was, that was a very good explanation of why Bitcoin's needed, why it's important, kind of what it is, and specifically Bitcoin mining, which is kind of a harder thing to wrap your head around. 